what we're going to do right now is we're going to transition and get into God's Word here. So if you guys would not mind opening your Bibles to the uh, Gospel of Mark chapter 4 is where we're at. Gospel of Mark chapter 4. Um, if you guys are new, I'm going to tell you a little bit uh, briefly kind of where we're at, what we've been doing. Uh, we started a series in the Gospel of Mark several months ago. And uh, we've been kind of making our way through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, just kind of taking a look at the life of Jesus. And one of the things that we'll, we've been taking a look at, one of the things that Mark really wants to emphasize about the life of Jesus is that Jesus is a king. And he kind of lets us on to that little secret early on in the very beginning of the entire book where he starts out in chapter 1, verse 1. And he says, uh, this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you're Jewish reading that, you're familiar with some of the ancient prophecies that whenever you read the word Christ, or uh, that's actually the, uh, the, the Greek term, uh, Christos, comes from the, the Greek word, or we call it Christ, or if you're Hebrew and using the Hebrew language, you would look at it as the word uh, Mashiach, or Messiah is where we get the word from. Um, it basically is a synonymous term. Uh, Christ and Messiah really basically means, in the mind of a Jew, a king. He's an anointed person. He's someone that is uniquely uh, appointed or anointed by God to do a task of reigning and ruling. And so what Mark lets us on in terms of this little secret is he wants us to understand from the very beginning that Jesus has an identity. Jesus has a vocation. And Jesus' identity from the very beginning of the entire book where he wants us to understand is that he's a king. And the reason why that's important is because Jesus' whole ministry, what Mark wants us to understand, is that everything that Jesus does is done with this purpose of spreading his, his power, his authority. And whenever you have some sort of a spread of power and authority of a king, we call that kingdom or a kingdom, king domain. Take the word kingdom, divide it into two, king, dome, king, domain, or a king's domain. It's where the king reigns. It's the area where the king has power or authority over. And that's what Mark wants us to understand. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, his reign, his dominion over elements in this world um, are exercised over everything. For example, Jesus comes in contact, has these power encounters with demonic forces. Jesus overcomes them. People that are demonically oppressed or possessed, Jesus overcomes that. He helps them. He sets people free. People that have incurable diseases, it's not a problem to Jesus because when his domain or his reign or his authority comes in contact or in conflict uh, with any other type of opposing forces, really, at the end of the day, Jesus always wins, right? He always wins. He always comes out on top. And that's the point. Mark wants us to understand that Jesus is a king and Jesus' dominion, Jesus' reign is spreading. It's come on the earth. It's beginning to move. It's beginning to change. We're beginning to see the effects of that. That's what Mark wants really his readers to really understand. That when this king comes, he changes things. Now what we're going to see throughout the Gospel of Mark, and we've already seen this, we're going to continue to see it, is that wherever Jesus' kingdom, because whenever you have a king, and a kingdom, or a king's domain, you're always going to have conflict. All the time. Always. Conflict always happens between two opposing kingdoms. We see that all throughout the Gospel of Mark. We see that all throughout the Bible, that there's these opposing kingdoms with the kingdom of God, kingdom of Jesus that's moving forward, changing things in opposition to these other forces, and you have this conflict with demonic forces, you have this conflict with the religious system, you have this conflict with disease, sickness, all sorts of other things. 
And why this is significant, why this is important, is because really this is what Mark wants us to understand, is that Jesus has power and has authority over all these things. And that even though, or in spite of the fact there are these uh, conflicts, Jesus will always win. This is really significant. Some of you need to hear this, you need to know this, you need to get this. Because this really taps into the problem that we have in the universe. The universe, the universal problem is this, is that all of us, at some point in our life, somewhere within the history of humanity, we've gone horribly wrong, and we have actually begun to think that we are kings unto ourselves. By the way, that is the problem of the universe. That's the problem that we always come in conflict with. If you ever had problems with other people, it's always because of this. You have conflicting kingdoms. You have conflicting kings who have their own idea of what the kingdom should look like. So for some, this looks like a despot or a leader or some sort of horrible dictator like Gaddafi who gets murdered over this past year and his entire kingdom just simply comes to a screeching halt and everything's over for him because the people that he, have, he has been oppressing have finally risen up and have crushed him. He's gone. He's dead. So it looks something like that, but it also looks something like the little neighborhood bully who's on the playground in the fourth grade who's trying to exercise his dictatorship over the jungle gym. All right, That's what it looks like. Little kid who wants to control, who wants to exercise his dominion, his authority. He'll push, force, connive, do whatever he can in order to exercise his domain. But it also looks like you and I who try to take matters in our own hands. We want to be kings. We want to be rulers. We want to exercise our dominion, our kingdom. What has happened in the universe is this. We were created originally for God's good pleasure, God's great delight. And by finding joy in God, by serving God, by loving God, by knowing God, by responding properly to our creator God, we would have joy. We would find the purpose for which we were created. So therefore, all the things that God had created for us to enjoy should become means by which we worship God. So the point of the matter is, is that God created all things. All creation was literally our playground to enjoy God's goodness. So think of it. Food is meant to stimulate praise, deep praise in our heart to worship a great God. Sex was a gift by God to be used to enjoy the love and companionship with another person, uh, betrothed for life in a marriage forever to enjoy the praises and the worship of God. But what's happened with all of these things and a trillion other ones is that we've turned them around. We've caused all of these good gifts given to us by a good God. We've looked at them all. We've taken them all. We've hoarded them unto ourselves. And we've ultimately used them all as means to bring ourselves joy and glory with the exclusion of God. In other words, we've taken them over to ourselves. We've hijacked them. We've abused them. And we've thought that really at the end of the day, we are the center of everything. That's the problem. That's the problem of the universe. That's the problem with our lives. In fact, if most of us, if you were begin to sort of dissect your life and the problems that some of us may have, begin to trace them back, oftentimes what you'll find at the center of all that is you. We think that we are the center of all things. And what happens is we're no longer free. We're no longer free to indulge in joy because we can't be joyful because things aren't going, guess whose way? Our way. We can't be joyful because everything has become about us. And what's happened 
is this kingdom conflict between my kingdom that I want to be established and God's kingdom that's radically opposite. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to begin to communicate to us the fact that he is a king, and when he comes, he brings his domain. He brings his kingdom. And when his kingdom comes, it begins to change things. His kingdom is very important. He wants us to understand the way that it works, the way that it moves forward. It's radically different than the way that we typically operate. But if we pay attention, if we heed it, if we listen to it, and we respond to it in an appropriate way, what will happen is we will find ourselves drawn back to Jesus, back to the purposes for which we are created. We find ourselves walking into a place whereby we, were, we are forgiven, washed, cleansed by God's solution, Jesus. Things are made right between us and our Creator, and therefore, consequently, things are made right between us and the cosmos, us and our relationships, us and our spouses, us and our parents, us and the world, community, life. That's what God is seeking to do. He's taking his kingdom somewhere. And typically the conflict that we have is between our kingdom that we hope to keep in establishment and God's kingdom, which we are fighting desperately to conquer and overcome. So the point that Mark wants us to understand with regard to this gospel account, <coughs> excuse me, he's going to show us that Jesus is on the move. And what he's doing is he's, he tells these stories. We call them parables. And in these stories, Jesus is going to begin to describe what God's kingdom is like. So he'll say things like, last week you guys had Ben Potter share with you guys. He said, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a guy who went out, sowed a bunch of seed. Some fell in rocky places. Some fell in good soil. Some produced crops. Some just didn't. So on and so forth. He's saying that the, the, the kingdom of God, my reign, my kingdom is like that. But he's going to continue to carry on these little stories. Again, like I said, they're called parables. And the purpose of a parable was intended to help people to understand something, to communicate to them something. So what Jesus, I think, really in terms of a theme, what he wants us to understand tonight is he wants us to realize that his kingdom is not come intended to be a mystery to us, but it's meant to be revealed to us so that we would see what his kingdom's all about, so that we would hear and perceive and respond and obey what his kingdom is all about, so that in turn, we'd find life. In turn, we would surrender our kingdom to God's kingdom, that we would allow our kingdoms to go and let God's kingdom come, that we would be changed. That's really what Jesus is trying to communicate and convey. So what I want to do tonight is I'm going to take a look at basically three things, kind of in the means of questions, first of which we'll take a look at what does it mean to see, because again, he's going to give this parable, this story about what it means to see. Second, we'll take a look at what it means to hear or perceive. And thirdly, we'll kind of ask the question, how do we get there? How do we hear? How do we see? properly? What do we need in order to equip us, to help us to be able to hear and see properly? So, you guys ready? Let's go. We're going to take a look at, first of all, how do we see or what does it mean to see? So, first of all, in verse 21, chapter 4 says this, then he said to them, is a lamp brought in, put under a basket or under a bed, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except that which, is, that which uh, will be made manifest, nor is there anything secret except that has come to the light. What Jesus is going to do, he's going to first of all talk about, in terms of this little story, this little parable, it sounds a little bit cryptic at first, and the purpose of parables are meant to get you to think. It's the whole purpose of them. Like poetry, to some degree. I'm not a huge poet type guy. I'm not really super into poetry. It's very confusing to me. Part of it is because I think I'm just lazy. I don't like to take the time to try to figure out what a string of, to me, nonsensical words mean. 
think if I did, I'd probably find beauty in it, but I don't. So that's my story. The point is, Jesus tells these stories because I think he intends for us to think through them, to really try to understand what is he saying? What is he talking about? He wants us to kind of begin to ask those questions, to wonder what it's about. It's like a piece of art. He wants us to kind of not just simply hear it, but to step back from it a little bit and try to gain a little perspective, to understand what is he trying to convey? What's he trying to communicate? So first of all, I think what Jesus is really trying to say is that there's something about this light, this light that's come. You take a light, and back then, obviously, their means of light were these little oil lamps. That was how they would light a room. So you go into a room, it's pitch black, someone brings in an oil lamp, set it up. You don't put it underneath the bed, you don't put it underneath a basket, you put it up on top of a lamp stand so that people can see it. The higher up it goes, the more light you actually allow to come into the house. So the purpose of the light is ultimately to bring illumination to the room. So this idea here is that the light has come, and it's come, and it's intended to bring illumination so that those that are in darkness would be brought out of the darkness and brought into the light. And this taps into a larger picture, or a larger problem that we have within the world. And the idea, I think, in the immediate context is Jesus wants us to understand something. He carries on sort of this long lineage of motifs or concepts or idioms that are found throughout the Bible. There's always this interplay or this exchange in the Bible throughout light uh, about light and darkness. It begins actually in the book of Genesis where God says in the beginning, uh, he creates all things and he creates light and darkness and so on and so forth. And you see this sort of motif carried on all throughout the Old Testament and even on into the New Testament where you have guys like the Apostle John. Uh, in his story or in his gospel account, his narrative, he talks about light and darkness. In the little uh, gospel or little epistles that he writes, First John, he talks this, about this contrast between light and darkness. And typically, the way that Jews and Hebrews would have understood this interplay between light and, and darkness is sort of this concept of moral purity, that God is, dwells in light unapproachable. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's this idea that God is morally pure. There is no defilement, no sin, no impurities whatsoever in God at all. But the flip side of this, or the contrast of this, is darkness. And there are those that live in darkness, or those that prefer to stay in darkness. And what happens is uh, this idea also gets picked up in the uh, book of Isaiah. And there's these little passages where God says, even though the world is sort of steeped in darkness, you can't get out of darkness. Some of you are like, I didn't know I was in darkness. The reason you didn't know you're in darkness is because you live in darkness. You don't know that you're in darkness. It's like a fish saying, I didn't know I was wet. It just is. That's the world that it lives in. It doesn't really know the difference between wet and dry. It's just in wetness. Same way we live in a world that we see beauty, but in reality, we also live in a world of moral impurity all around us. It's not just simply out there on the news, on the internet. It's in our hearts. There's a moral impurity about us. Not just the things that we do, it's also the things that we think. We can't get rid of it. We can't get away from it. But there is this constant contrast between the light of God, the moral purity of God, and the darkness of humanity, the moral impurity of mankind, the moral defilement of mankind. And what Jesus is trying to say is that this light has come. Things are about to change. Something's about to happen. There's at least three reasons, typically, the Bible's going to point out for us as to why, for the most part, humanity remains in darkness, or stays in darkness, or doesn't come to the light. Or when the light turns on, there's sort of this, this 
at, at this sense of like pushing it away. We don't want to be involved in the light. We don't want to come to the light. It's troubling for us or shocking to us. It's kind of like waking up at four in the morning, having someone shine a light in your face. Nobody likes that, right? That's very frustrating. It's very troubling for good reasons because we don't like to be jolted out of our darkness with sudden light. And what Jesus is saying is that this light has come and it's kind of jostled people. It's hit them. It's frustrated them. Some people don't want to come to the light. Some people will be forced to come to the light because you can't avoid the light forever. You can try to hide. You can try to stay in the shadows. But the thing that Jesus is saying is that the light has come. and It's beginning to shine. So there's at least three reasons why people typically avoid the light and don't come to the light. The first of which is because we sin and we feel empowered by the darkness and therefore we despise the light. This is exactly what John says in John chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus says it himself, actually. Is that people don't come to light. They sin, they do evil, they do evil within a darkness, and therefore they feel empowered by the darkness. So therefore, to some degree, the darkness, more or less, is like, kind of like a friend, even though it's really not a friend. It's a foe. It's a deceptive foe. And the reality is, is that some people don't like to come to light. They don't like to talk about moral purity. They don't like to talk about God. They don't like to talk about Christianity. They don't want to talk about you know, getting their heart right. They don't want to talk about exposing their sin. They want to keep things concealed. They want to keep things in the dark. That's what Jesus means. Some people actually hate the light, avoid the light, don't want to come to the light. And in some ways, maybe that's where some of you are at tonight. Maybe that's been your life. Maybe for some reason you're just here and you don't even know why you're here. I think you're here. Perhaps because God loves you and he wants to bring you to the light. Real question is, will you come? Will you allow God to do what he wants to do? Will you let the light not just simply shine on you, but shine through you? to permeate you, to go through you, to bring about a transparency. But the reality is that there are some who hate the light because they love their evil deeds and they don't want to come to the light. The second group of people, I think, are those who either sin or are sinned against and therefore they feel ashamed. They don't hate the light, but they fear the light. They're afraid of it. And I would say probably this is where most of us find ourselves. We sin, we feel ashamed, we wish we didn't do it. We wish we hadn't entered into that sin. We wish that had not taken place. We wish our heart didn't go there. We wish our actions hadn't been that. We wish somehow we can modify it or just simply, you know, command Z and pull it away. We wish somehow we can just stop and redo or undo the things that we've done, but we can't. And we feel defiled. We feel broken. We feel bad. And therefore, we run from God because we're afraid. We're fearful. Uh, if that's you. Maybe some of you, that is you. That's the life that you live. That's the area where you find yourself. That's the path that you oftentimes walk because you're somebody that you sin. You have a heart for God. You love God. But what happens is oftentimes you find the fact that your flesh is still weak. You are broken. You are a fractured person. You do things that you wish you didn't do. You think things that you wish you didn't think. And you keep going down that path. And what happens is that you find yourself feeling defiled. You feel as if you can't go to God. You feel as if, maybe for some of you, it's like, I don't want to go to church because all those people at church are all really good Christians. I, I got a dirty, dark little secret to tell you. Everybody here is pretty jacked up. Everybody. And you're like, that's not me. I'm not jacked up. You're jacked up because you're prideful. All right? All right? We're, we're all jacked up. We're all messed up. We're a very, very dysfunctional group of people. All of us. We all have sins that some of us just kind of everybody knows. 
or we have sins that nobody else knows about. They're just sort of still in the dark, and we feel ashamed over these things. So that little concept that comes in your mind, you're like, I can't go to church because everybody's so great, and I'm not. It's just a lie from the devil to keep you away from God, to keep you fearing God. You don't need to fear God. Yeah, your deeds are evil. Of course they are. Yeah, you sin. You sin. That's, that's, that's what happens. That's what sinners do. But you have a God that has done everything to reset the story, that he's not a God necessarily that you've got to run from. This is one of the reasons why in the New Testament, Jesus is always trying to emphasize the fact that he's a daddy. He's a father. He loves you. He calls you. You don't need to be afraid of him. Yes, there's a sense of a healthy fear, meaning we recognize that he's a king. He's a mighty warrior. and He stands absolutely emphatically opposed to sinfulness. But he's a dad who's done everything to reverse the consequences of sin against us. That's what he's done by having a son step in our place. That's, that's the beauty of this. So some of us, we... Uh, don't come to the light because we sin and we feel ashamed and we fear the light. Again, for some of us, it might be because you've been sinned against. Maybe something has happened to you. Maybe it wasn't something necessarily that you did. Maybe it was something that had been done to you. And you felt defiled. You felt disgraced. You felt just as if something that you would have never thought about doing except it has happened to you and you feel filthy and therefore you feel fear about coming to God or coming to God who is morally pure because you look at yourself and you think you're not morally pure. You are morally defiled. But what you need to see is that the light is there for us to come to so that we can be cleaned and be freed. The final group is people that I would say are those that are held captive by this darkness. Meaning, typically what happens here in this third category of people, they're held captive. They don't know how to get out of the darkness. They don't know how to leave. They become sort of comfortable there, in a sense, where they don't, they don't, they don't know life outside of it, don't know how to get out of it. It's this idea where throughout the New Testament, there's this concept that says those who sin become slaves to sin. In some ways, I think of the idea or the picture within Lord of the Rings where you have this ring, you kind of mess around with the ring, you think this ring's awesome, it's beautiful, it's my little precious, you know, it's like uh, you, you want to wear this ring and then yet you put it on your finger and all of a sudden it overcomes you and you are powerless against its, its power and against its weightiness. It has this sense of authority over you, but it's this idea, this picture, that darkness just begins to lock you in. It clamps down upon you, and you're not free anymore. You're not free anymore. Uh, I was reading a, um, a, a book a few days ago was, um, by this guy. He was actually a psychologist that was a Jewish guy. He lived, um, and he was actually taken captive during the Second World War to Auschwitz. And uh, he's one of the few guys that actually survived him. And uh, within the story, he was kind of an interesting guy because he was a psychologist before the war. And throughout the entire war, he actually analyzed himself. It's a really fascinating book. And he describes the effects that suffering has upon a person. I'm not sure if the guy's a Christian or not. He makes a lot of allusions to Christian uh, concepts and ideas and, and verses and scripture and whatnot. I don't know exactly where he's at. But uh, he describes this section where um, after the war had hap- or finished, and they released all these people from Auschwitz, and a lot of them, they just kind of opened the door and like, leave, go. And a lot of the people, they didn't even know what to do. He just describes this moment like where the doors were open, and the Allied soldiers came in, they're like, you guys are free. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to go. 
and in some absolutely strange, freakishly weird way, Auschwitz actually became a place of sort of comfort for them. They didn't know what to do. And he describes this moment where he's walking down the road, and he, he smells the flowers, and he, he sees glimpses of sun rays, and, and he watches birds flying around and butterflies. And all of a sudden, he, he, he had this moment, this kind of epiphany of thinking, I don't think I belong to this world. And then it hit him, I do belong to this world. I'm free. But it took a while for him to really experience that and know that. In some ways, some people don't come to the light because they've been trapped, they've been stuck, they flirted with sin, they entered into this relationship with sin, and therefore they become trapped by the darkness. Well, the point that I think Mark wants us to understand that Jesus is conveying to us through this little story, this parable, is that the light has come. The light has come. Now, in each of these little parables or stories that Jesus is going to give, both of these actually come with two things. One, a promise. Second, a warning. So both of these actually convey or communicate a promise and a warning. We'll take a look at both promises and warnings in each of these. First of all, we'll take a look at the promise. I think the idea is this, is that the promise really is this, is that those who come and see that the light has come. Now, in the original Greek, it says something like this. It says in verse 21, and he said to them, is a lamp brought to be put underneath a, a basket or a bushel. In the actual original language, it basically describes um, that the lamp has come. It's actually a Greek word. The Greek way it's, it's used is that a lamp has come. So the implication is that Jesus is no doubt depicting himself as the lamp, that the lamp has come. And the lamp has come not to be concealed, not so that there's this ambiguity about who Jesus is, like, Jesus didn't come to sort of live this kind of uh, ambiguous lifestyle. Like, who is he? I don't know. He's really mysterious. He's awesome. He's like a rock star, Superman. Who is he? I don't know. You know, Jesus saying, no, no, I didn't come so that I would live in ambiguity. I came not to be concealed, but to be revealed. So that you would know me. That you would see me. And I think the point that he's trying to make is that this light has come. And those people that have lived in darkness have seen this great light. And they rejoice at the fact that the day has finally arrived. That their liberation is about to happen. Their captivity is coming to a close. I love this picture. That this promise is amazing because those that have lived in darkness, those that have felt the darkness, the tangibility of the darkness, the realness of the darkness. Maybe some of you, that's... That's been your life. You felt that. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Those moments of darkness that come over you. It's horrific. It's tangible. It's destructive. A lot of it happens because of the sin, like I said, that we bring into our lives. But sometimes it's because of sin that's happened against us. But nonetheless, it's always, always, always connected to sin. All the time. And you felt the weight of that darkness. But the good news, the promise, is that the light has come to deal with the darkness, to push it back. Some of you guys know, last week I was actually in Costa Rica surfing. And uh, it was a great trip. It was a wonderful trip, actually. And weather was like 85 degrees every day. It was awesome. And uh, by this time, last week, it was about two hours ahead. And it was like, I don't know, 7.30, 9.30. I was probably asleep. So that's what I did. slept early. But woke up early. Um, we checked surf reports every single day. And with all the surf reports also came kind of a, a report about, uh, you know, when the sun rises and when the sun sets. And that was important to us because we wanted to maximize our time and get as much time in the water as we could. So uh, every morning we just kind of looked at it, try to figure out, you know, not every morning, like once, 
twice. We kind of checked. Okay, what time does the sun rise? One of the things I noticed on reports was that there were actually two like little sections that describe um, what happens in the early mornings. Um, so it has this moment where it says sunrise. I think sunrise might have been around like, I don't know, 633 or something like that. But then there was something before that that described kind of a time period. Didn't describe it as sunrise, just described it as first light. Now, if you're a surfer, if you've ever surfed, if you've ever been kind of a morning person, you know there's a section of time, usually about a half an hour, maybe 40 minutes max, that before the sun actually rises, that it's light enough to do things. You can go hike a mountain, go mountain bike. If you surf, you can actually get out in the water and you can see things just barely enough. There's a lot of shadows, but the closer you get to sunrise, meaning the moment the sun actually crests on the horizon, comes up, and you begin to see it, then you're blinded by the light, there's enough light to do things. I think, in a very clear sense, this is what Jesus is saying. The light's come. The light's come. One of the beautiful elements or beautiful moments about that time is you know that night's gone. It's lost its grip. The day's coming. I think what Jesus is saying very clearly is that night has lost its grip. Darkness no longer wins. Now there's going to come a day when this daytime will be fully realized. I would say we're living in an elongated period of first light. There's going to come a day when Jesus comes back fully, entirely. Call it his second coming. And he will rule and reign. He will set up his kingdom in fullness. And the light of God's light will be completely realized. Habakkuk describes a day when the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. It will be profound. People will not be guessing, wondering, is God really alive? Is God really living? Is God doing things? At that point, at that moment, it will be a no-brainer question. Everybody will know very clearly that Jesus has come, set up his rule and reign, peace on earth. We look at that time as something we eagerly look forward to and will happen at some point. That is the moment that I think Jesus was, what he's trying to convey and communicate is that the darkness has become defeated, even though darkness still resides, even though there's still shadows, even though there's still traces of the night. The sun's coming. It's rising. You can't stop it. Now for the warning. Amen. Now for the warning. The warning is this. So those of you that still continue to live in that mentality, holding on to the sin, living in the darkness, at some point you will be confronted by the light. And either you will be forced to confess and to deal with your sin, to deal with the darkness, and separate yourself from the darkness, or you will become one with that darkness, and ultimately you will be given way by the light. The light will penetrate, will permeate, will be devoured by the light. That's the warning that I think Jesus is trying to convey. This is absolutely serious. Because we live in kind of this world where we have this mentality where we think, you know, we, we even question, does evil ever even exist? It's a lot of speculation. And in, in a lot of ways, we're very, very full of skepticism. And we typically live in a mentality where we just doubt and question the existence of evil until evil comes and smacks us between the eyes with something like a 9-11. We just distrust or disbelieve it until something so profound happens that we are faced with some level or degree of just debilitating evil that we don't even know what to do with it. And we fail to see the evil that's right here. And what Jesus, I think, is trying to say very clearly is that darkness is not something that's way out there. Darkness is right here. 
And either we feel the tangibility of it and we feel the effectiveness of it and the destructiveness of it and we come to the light, we allow the light to do its penetrating work upon our hearts and we confess the darkness to God. And we allow the light to burn and cleanse and purify and bring all things to the surface. Or we become consumed by the light and we'll be destroyed. We become one with the darkness. Some of you, I fear for some of you. Because you play games. You somehow think that you can just get by. You somehow think that this really won't happen. Somehow you think that the reality is, is that it won't happen to you. That somehow we typically think we can become the exception. We can get by. We can skate by. We can make choices that are evil and wicked and full of darkness. And somehow we think that we are the exception. But the point is, is that when the sun shines and the day comes, light will permeate all areas of darkness. And light will rule and reign. That's what Jesus, I think, is trying to say. That the promise really is to bless and encourage those that find themselves in the grip of darkness, knowing that his light has come to liberate and set free. But the warning comes to those that continue to hold on to darkness rather than relinquish it, to move away from it, to let go of it, to stop allowing it to have its destructive effects, debilitating effects in your life and upon the lives of other people and come to the light and let the light transform you. The second little parable and story that Jesus wants us to understand is really this idea of hearing. So first, seeing. Do we see? Do we let God uh, allow us to see the things that are there about Jesus? Secondly, do we hear? How do we hear? What does it mean to hear? And Mark chapter 4, uh, 24 says this, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus basically says this little statement. You guys have ears? Make sure that you hear. And the emphasis is not just so much the fact that you have ears, but if you have ears, make sure that you use those ears. That which means or implies the fact that we can hear things, but not really hear things. Does that make sense? You can hear things, but not really perceive what's going on. So there's something here that Jesus wants us to make sure that we understand. Verse 24, he says, And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With what measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. But the one who has, more will be given. And the one who uh, has not, even what he has will be taken away. And again, promise and a warning. I think the promise is this, is that he wants us to make certain that the way that we hear, that we hear clearly, that we hear properly, and I think the way that Jesus is using this concept or this word to hear is important. Because when we think of hear, we just hear of, uh, or we think of hear as being, you know, audibly being able to perceive or understand something or make something out or figure it out. But that's not the way that Jesus is using this particular word here. The idea, more so, I think, would be best described by three words, all right? It's kind of the English word, I think, doesn't capture the entirety of what Jesus is trying to say. And his three words, I think, may be captured a little bit more. So it involves hearing. Involves perceiving, involves obedience. So hearing, perceiving, and obeying. I think that captures the idea or the essence of the concept of hearing that Jesus is trying to convey. I think the reason why is because, for example, Jesus says this again. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he said, pay attention to what you hear. So I think the emphasis is upon not just hearing, not just audibly making out some sort of noise, but making certain that what you hear actually makes sense and therefore then you respond to that it's really important now the promise is this that those who hear those who take what they've perceived and what they've heard and they've responded to that jesus 
describes it this way. Those who measure with the same measure that they've been given and are measured out, uh, the same measure will be given back to them. I think the idea that Jesus is trying to convey is that if you do appropriately with what you've been given, in other words, you're responsible with what's been given to you, and you're appreciative for what's been given to you, and you're responsive to what's been given to you, you'll be given more. More revelation, more joy, more life, deeper life, deeper uh, enjoyment of life that comes from the gospel. So what to me, I think this means for the first century hearers that would be hearing this, I think what Jesus is saying is that, look, you have had the prophets speak to you. You've had John the Baptist, the greatest of all the prophets, speak to you. You've heard me speak to you. You've watched me cast out demons. You've watched me heal the leper. You've watched me take the marginalized and the broken and the people that have lost all identity because, you know, like Levi, who's a tax collector, everybody would have just written him off, or the whores, or whoever, people that have lost their identity. Jesus says, no, I've given them life back. I think what Jesus is saying is that you've had all these things happen in front of your eyes. Those who respond to that, which you've seen and heard, more will be given to you. So here's the way I think this looks in our own lives. Is that all of us, I think all of us, like if you were to look at the sum total of your life and ask yourself the question, what, what has God done in your life throughout the entirety of your life that he's demonstrated kindness or acts of grace or goodness on your behalf to put people in your life to reveal bits and pieces of God? I mean, what I mean by this is like, for example, have you had a mom or dad that loved Jesus? Did they tell you about Jesus? Some of you did, some of you didn't. What about a pastor or a Bible study leader or somebody in your life or a next door neighbor? For some of you, it's like you had a great grandma that loved Jesus. She loved Jesus with all of her heart. When you were young, she'd sit you on her lap, sing you songs, tell you about stories about Jesus, do a weird flannel graph, something. You had people in your life that you can look at and say, they told me about Jesus. They gave me wisdom. They imparted wisdom and life to me about Jesus. For some of you, it's like you listen to Christian radio. Every once in a while, you can hear decent things on Christian radio. More or less, every once in a while, you can hear things on television that sometimes is semi-decent. Emphasis, semi. The point that I would make is this, is that we have things in our lives, throughout our lives, that God uses to speak to us, to communicate to us, to demonstrate his kindness to us. What do we do with that? Do we listen to it? Do we hear it? Do we respond to it? The people that God has placed in your life, have you responded to the wisdom they've imparted to you? Have you listened to it? Have you absorbed it into your life? Have you treasured it in your heart? Have you taken those little nuggets of truth that grandma gave you? They're like, oh my gosh, grandma was amazing. She told me amazing things. I want to live according to those things. Or have you just been like, ah, oh, grandma was senile. Her hair was pink. She was weird. Had Christian t-shirts. All right? Did you just like, like write her off? The point that I would make is this, is that the measure that we use fidelity that we have to that which has been given to us, I think what Jesus is saying, more will be given to you. You'll engage life in a deeper level. You'll understand greater revelation of God. That's the promise. The warning that Jesus makes, I think, is this, is that if you don't, even what you have will be taken from you. See, here's the problem that we have in this world. 
like I said earlier, we tend to look at ourselves and we think that we are little kings. We tend to look at the little things that we have in our lives and we think, I did this. You look at the money that you make, you're like, I did this. The career that you have, I did this. The diploma that you have, I did this. Maybe you have good looks. Maybe you're like the very small, narrow margin of people in this world that have just been blessed with extremely good looks. Did you do that? Did you ask to be given that? What about where you live? How many of you like woke up and you're like, you know what? California, that's where I want to live. That's where I want to be born. That's where I want to be placed. Or Ukraine or wherever it is. I mean, like most of us, we, we weren't in that meeting casting our vote. So the reality is that everything we have is a gift given to us. Everything. And we fail to see that oftentimes. And what happens is we tend to look at the things that we have and we tend to think that they are intended to terminate upon us. Everything revolves around us. So what happens is we live our lives in such a way that we try to grasp everything that we can to expand our kingdom. To build our little empires. To build our little worlds. So we use our looks. We have them. To gain success, to gain popularity. We use our skills, our musical talents, our artistic abilities to somehow advance ourselves. Or if you're some computer geeky nerd dude, you're like, I'm going to tap into the mainframe. And you're like, you use your technical skills to like somehow advance your own little kingdom. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what skill set you've been given, right? We use the things that we typically have. We abuse these things to somehow advance our little kingdoms. And what Jesus is saying is that everything that you've been given has not been given to terminate on you. It's been a gift given to you by your creator, God, so that you would make much of him. C.S. Lewis would put it this way. He says, you aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. But if you aim at, aim at earth, you'll get neither. To me, one of the most chilling, shocking images of all 2011, and it's still just stuck in my head, it'd probably be burned in my head till the day I die, was seeing Gaddafi lying on the ground on a little thin, you know, wafer of a bed in a refrigerator being gawked at by a bunch of crazy spectators. Here was a guy that had palaces, had money, had women, had success, had authority, had power, had fame, and now he has absolutely nothing, ultimately even stripped of his dignity. He thought he had the world. He lost everything. But you know what? We're all little Gaddafis. Do you know that? That's us. That's who we all are. We don't have oil resources, I don't think. We don't, we don't have palaces, all right? We have lazy boy chairs in which we rule from, all right? We don't have, like, scepters of righteousness. We have remote controls, all right? The point that I'm making is that we, don't, we might not have the means that Gaddafi had, but all of us, at the end of the day, that's the, our problem, is that we fight 
so hard to hold on to this world, to maintain what we have, to secure ourselves, our position in this world. And I think what Jesus is saying is that if you live like that for your kingdom, everything you have, you lose. You lose it all. Everything will go away. In the end. Some of you need to know this because you struggle with this thought. Is God real? Does he really exist? Is all this true? And you're fighting to hold on to your little kingdom. You want to use people for yourself, for your own purposes, for your own glory. You want to use the gifts that God's given to you to be used to bring glory and honor and praise to him. And you use these things to terminate them on yourself. You use them as the means to bring glory to yourself. Please understand. The light has come. That Jesus has spoken. And we have a responsibility of things that he's revealed to us. And I'm, I'm confident in this room because some of you might be like, I don't have a great grandma told me about Jesus. I don't have a pastor. I've never been a Christian. I've never been to church. You're here tonight. What you heard for the past 45 minutes, the guy with the bald head yelling at you, you'll be held accountable for. You're like, I don't like his haircut. It doesn't matter. <laughs> All right? I, it, I, you know, I, yeah, I'm messed up. But the point I'm making is this, is that it doesn't matter how the delivery is. It, what matters is, did you hear God speak? Will you respond to it? Are you perceptive? Do you hear, perceive, and obey? Because with what measure you use and you make, measure will be given back to you. Or if you don't, you'll even lose that. So here's the final thing I want to finish with. is How do we see and hear properly? That's really the question I want to summarize with. I want to finish with. I want to summarize with a couple of thoughts. Because again, when we look at Jesus, and he's a king, he's got a kingdom, He's spreading his kingdom. He's communicating his kingdom. And what's going on here, up until this point, we've seen Jesus basically communicate that his kingdom is radically different than the kingdom of this world. Please understand that the kingdom of this world is really just the way that you and I would rule this world. It's, it's, we, we, would, we wouldn't be any different. So some of us are like, I would never rule like a Gaddafi. Really? Like, I mean, think about it. Like, if you had millions of dollars at your own disposal and you had people just willing to do anything for you, and you had a gun in your hand, you can just take any, I mean, we, we have this propensity, like, we think, now that's not me, I'm too, not able to do that, I couldn't do that, but the reality is, given enough power, enough means, enough ability, enough praise, enough honor, we end up believing our own headlines. And we have this kingdom conflict, conflict between our kingdom, little subordinate kingdoms, and God's kingdom. And Jesus says, no, my kingdom is radically different than the kingdom, kingdom of this world in the way that you guys live your own kingdoms. And there's at least three different ways in which Jesus would describe this. So Jesus' kingdom is basically like this. He says this, the way to get more is to give away what you have. You want a way to prosper? Jesus would put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Who inherits the earth? Warmongers? People that have... uh, Ballistic missiles, people that have the biggest tanks, are those the ones that inherit the earth? We have to face this. I mean, America has not always been the most peaceful, peace-loving nation. We think we we are, but the reality is, I wonder how many times that we've gone out, we've just tried to fight battles for our own extension of what we want to do and take. 
Is it using power and force? Is that how we inherit the earth? And Jesus says, no, the meek. The meek inherit the earth. The way to get more is to give away what you have. I'll tell you guys a little, little dirty secret here. Um, how many of you guys have actually like led Bible studies before and been involved in Bible studies that you've actually led? Raise your hand. That's something. All right, cool. Um, you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. The rest of you, I'm going to tell you the little secret. You'll know what I'm talking about here in a moment. But the reality is, is that if you've ever led a Bible study, you'll know that one of the things that you do when you prepare for a Bible study, you ask God to show you what the Bible's all about and what it's trying to communicate and say so that when you go and sit down with your little group of people that you're hanging out with or discipling or teaching, whatever, you, your prayer is that God help these people to learn and grow and get to know you. That's what I want. So you pray and you diligently seek God and you study the word. You get your strong concordance and do, you do all your little Bible studies and stuff like that. And you're really trying to be diligent. And what happens is that when you go and hang out with a group of people and you open up your Bible and you begin to teach them and communicate things to them, at the end of the night, who learned the most? Who was blessed the most? Right? It was you. All the time. This is the way it works. Why? You, you, you tapped into this, this secret. You have been given something, but given something with the intention of giving it away. So what you have, you've had this mentality in your mind. They're like, I, I want to give this away. I want people to learn and grow and know and hear and respond and love and have the affections of their hearts served. I want that. And here's what's happened. At the end of the day, you're the one that's had your heart change and your affection stirred and your love for God grow deeper and your knowledge of God go further and beyond. That You're the one that has been given more because jesus kingdom basically says this the way to get more is you give away what you have the world basically says the way to get more is you hoard protect and once you have it you secure it you want to give it away it's the way the world works it's the way we're wired jesus is also going to say the kingdom of god really is like this the way up is by going down the way up the way you ascend by going down basically the way the world thinks no no, no. the way the the way up is by bringing others down, slandering other people, putting them down, mocking them, blogging about them, doing whatever you can to somehow defame them because if you can somehow throw mud upon them, cast them down, I mean, isn't that what, like, political debates are all about? I mean, I get so sick and tired of watching the news that I just stop watching it. It's frustrating. It's like every single day you hear some other guy talking about how nasty or bad this other person is. It's like, this is sickening. I hate this. But the reality is that's the way we are typically wired to think. The way that we build ourselves up is by bringing others down. But Jesus says another way up is you bring yourself down. You humble yourself. And finally, Jesus is going to describe it this way, that his kingdom basically says the way to fullness is really by emptying. But the world is going to say, no, the way to fullness is by filling yourself, grabbing everything that you can, hoarding everything that you can, taking what you can with as much eagerness and desperateness as you can because you never know uh, when it's going to run out and who, who's going to look out for you except yourself. Let me tell you something. This is the way a lot of us live. This is the way maybe some of you are living right now, that you are eagerly, desperately trying to find something to satisfy, to fill your heart, to satisfy your soul, and you're grasping for anything that you can. I want to tell you something very clearly. If you live like that, what you'll discover is two things. One, you'll discover is that nothing in this world, no matter how big, how beautiful it may seem, it's not big enough to satisfy the breadth of your soul. It's not big enough. The second thing is you begin to realize is that living like that is so radically exhausting. 
because nothing works. Nothing satisfies. Because your soul was made for God. Your life was made to be in relationship with your Creator. But as long as we remain at war with our Creator, we continue to think that we are king and God's our servant. And we lose because the light's come. It's shining. What are we doing with that light? Jesus has spoken. Have we heard? Have we perceived? Have we obeyed? The reality is, that's what Jesus is trying to convey. I'm going to finish with this thought. I heard this story not too long ago. It's this story of a cat and a dog. And the reality is, it's kind of a funny story, and I'll share it with you guys. It's this thought of like, here's a cat. And it's two, the way two different you know, people can perceive things. And so here's a cat. He looks at his master, and he's like, ah, oh, i got food. i got place to stay. Cleans up after me. I must be God. All right, and the dog, flip side, he's like, I got food, I got a place to stay, my master cleans up after me, takes me on a walk, he must be God. And this becomes very self-evident if you have a dog or a cat and you come home, right? You come home and the cat won't even pay any attention to you whatsoever. In fact, almost doesn't even want to be bothered by you and you're like, here kitty, kitty, and he's just like puts his tail up in your face and walks away because you've entered into his domain, his space, and you're not welcomed. But the dog, you come home, and the dog throws himself at your feet, bows before you, licks you, can't get enough of you, is deeply, deeply worshipful and affectionate for you because you are the master. A lot of us, we live our lives like the cat. We think that we are in control. It's about our domain. It's about our kingdom. We are ultimately God, and God is there to serve our purposes. My point is this, is that when we live like this, we find ourselves in radical conflict because our souls are never, ever free. Let me give you an example of how this works out in two different ways, and I'm done. First of which if one of these days, most of you I know, because evening service, 95% of you are not married. Someday, statistically, all of you will. All right? Some of you might not believe that, but hold on, it will happen someday. The point that I would make is this, is that if you live with this mentality that the world is about you, that if your spouse is there for your good purposes, to serve you, and you will never be free because what will happen is your spouse will never, ever be able to fully satisfy you. You will always be frustrated. You will always be let down. And you will put a, a weight of oppression upon them that they will not ever be able to bear or withstand. You're not free. But if you see the fact that God's the center of it all, and God's a good God, good dad who gives good gifts, maybe in the form of a spouse. And that's a gift that he's given to you to steward and love, in which you can lay your life down and serve and lovingly support and sacrifice yourself or respond by submission the way Jesus submitted himself to the Father. And you know what happens? You're not free. You're free to love that person in spite of their dysfunctionalities in spite of their flaws, in spite of their even sinful proclivities, because you're free. You're set free. The other example is this. Yesterday started the brand new junior high basketball season for girls. Like, 
How do you know that? Because I got a daughter who just started playing yesterday. Like, I, I don't go hang out and watch junior high basketball games, girls. But I have a daughter that plays, and she just started yesterday. So we, we go down there, and, and last year she played too, and it was, it was one of the most disturbing things of the whole season. Still, we still talk about it to this day because our whole family was just like shocked and awed by it. But there was, a, there was a dad who actually happened to be the coach, and he would sit there and yell at his daughter, not on my daughter's team, yell at his daughter, Yell at his daughter because she wasn't passing the ball or she wasn't making the shots or she wasn't hoarding the ball. Really what had happened was this is a picture of a dad who had lost sight that the game somehow had become all about him. He wasn't free. He wasn't free to sit back and enjoy the game. He wasn't free. In fact, he brought oppression upon his daughter, which consequently brought oppression on the whole team because his daughter started yelling at all of her team members. It was a horrible, horrible day. Our kids still talk about it. They're still like, oh, I, I hope we don't see that guy this year. Like, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. It's kind of a creep. But the reality is, is it, you know, it comes a teachable moment. But the point that I'm making is just that when, when this world, when we look at the things that God's given us, and we begin to think that they're intended to terminate on us, that everything is intended for our purposes, that we are the king, we are the center of it all, you're not free. But when you're able to step back and realize that everything that you have in this life has become or is a gift from a gracious, loving, caring God who's done everything to restore the fracture, the brokenness between you and Him. It changes everything. And the way that we begin to see ultimately and how this works in our life for us to truly see and hear the message of Jesus' kingdom is we begin to make this connection that Jesus was the light coming to this world. But on the cross, Jesus allowed the darkness to befall him, absorbed by the darkness. Matthew describes the time while Jesus is on the cross and this deep darkness covered Jesus. That was your darkness. That was my darkness. And he bore that for us to set us free, to liberate us. When we know that, when we see that, what that does is it does something in our heart. It affects our affections for our God and what he's done and the depths that he's gone to set us free. So that actually empowers us to say, Lord, my kingdom must go. Your kingdom come. That's where it's at. For some of us, that's what needs to happen tonight. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. I'm going to have a team come on up. We're going to sing. Before we do, what I want to do right now is I want to give you guys an opportunity to respond because at the end of the day, I mean, we can talk about this stuff. And it's all great. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to just become jaded and just hear Bible study and walk out. And like, oh, it was a good study. Like, this is about us responding. What are we going to do with what God has spoken to us tonight? For some of you, this means... You've got to come to Jesus and confess sin to him. Because look, at the end of the day, if Jesus is not a king, what matter does this make anyhow? None of us. None of this really matters. But if he is a king, if he is the king, and not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the cosmos, king of all things, you really think you're going to bargain with him? You really think you'll let darkness and our lives just slide or slip past him? 
Guys, the light has come. For some of us, that means we've got to confess and repent and turn. Stop playing games. The promises are real. The warnings are real. I pray that we respond. What I want to do right now, I'm going to have the team come on up. We're going to sing. Why don't you guys come on up? If you're here tonight and you want to do business with God and you want to confess sin, maybe for some of you this means you're not a Christian, you want to become a Christian. For some of you this might mean that you claim to be a Christian, but, but you're still playing around with darkness or you've not been listening, you've not been responding to the things that Jesus communicated and you're playing this game and you want to change, you want to repent, you want to confess sin. All I want you to do is stand. This is always tough. But this is the beginning of it. There's nothing magical about standing. It's just that it's a way of you saying, I'm going to deal with it. Thanks, man. Stand up right where you're at. This is the hard part, man, because it's like, you know, get stuck to your seat. And you know, like I said, there's nothing magical about standing. It's just a matter of like saying, I don't want to play games anymore. I want to come to the light. I want the light to, to penetrate me. I want, I, want, I want to come and let the light do what the light does and, and wash me and cleanse me and purify me and, and burn away just the crap that's in my life and cleanse me. For some of you, that's what you need to do. It's a matter of just coming to grips with it and coming to reality with it and just letting God do to you, for you, what God wants to do. This is not about you saying, I'm just going to try harder, I'm going to do better. You've got to stop that because you can't, you won't. This is about you saying, I'm going to stop trying to do better and I'm going to trust what God has done already for me on his behalf for me because he loves me. This is a matter about you taking a totally radically different approach to the life that God wants to give you. Really, it involves you just surrendering and stopping. Anybody else? Just stand up right where you're at. It's always tough, man. Appreciate appreciate the honesty, guys. I mean, that's, that's what the light is, man. We talk about the lights. It's coming to honesty. What I hate to see is for some of you just keep going on. You're like living in darkness. You don't want to come to grips with it. You don't want to come clean with it. God already knows what's going on in your life. Anybody else? Just stand up right where you are. I'm just going to pray for you guys. That's all I'm going to do. You're not going to share your testimony or anything. It's not going to get weird. Just come all we want to do is pray for you. Alright. If uh, you're sitting down next to someone that's standing, um, would you guys mind just laying hands on these people? And uh, we do this because uh, it's just a way of us saying that we're here with you. We're not going to leave you alone. We're not going to stand and support you. We support you. We love you. It's just as messed up and as dysfunctional as you are. The beauty is that you guys are wanting to just come clean with it and deal with it. So I appreciate that. I'm going to pray. And uh, you guys can just agree along with me. If you want to pray out loud over the people that you're laying hands on to, that's fine. Go ahead and pray so they can hear you. But I'm going to pray. And then we'll sing. Partake of communion. Remember what Jesus did for us on the cross sin. So Father, right now we just want to pray for these that have just stood. You know exactly what's been going on in their heart, what they've been dealing with, what darkness that they've been uh, fighting against, or maybe even just been submitting to without even any fight. The type of uh, defilement that they felt that has just caused them to feel reluctance to come to you because they, they're afraid of you. They're fearful of you. They've uh, believed lies. And God, we pray right now that you set them free and liberate. In Jesus 
comes to set us free. Father, we want to submit ourselves. We pray that for our brothers and sisters here right now that desire to stand and just commit and communicate. Portray the fact that they, they, they want to stop, they want to surrender and let you do what you want to do in their lives. So, God, I pray for them right now. I pray over them right now. Set them free. Bring cleansing to their heart. Remove defilement. Uh, reestablish purity. Lord, I love the fact that you love to cleanse and wash and purify. I pray that you would do that over their hearts right now. Help them to understand you as a father, that, you would, that they would see you as a loving dad who cares for them, and your great desire is to just bring them home, to shower them in affection, to shower them in love, set them free from sin, set them free from a myriad of devices, sins that have held their hearts, set them free. So God, set us free as well, to just worship you, to love you, to honor you, to sing to you.